I hope you're in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20. And let's begin in Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series called 10. And of course we are referring none other than the Ten Commandments. And in referring to the Ten Commandments, often when these are taught as individual sessions, the narrative is lost because they don't take into consideration verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And so we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, we often have the explanation of the Ten Commandments, but notice that the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand all the things that have happened up until that time that those commandments were given, and that is summarized in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the foundation. What God did in the first 19 chapters of Exodus led and laid the foundations for the giving of the Ten Commandments. And until you understand what God was demonstrating, what God was showing, what God was doing in the first 19 chapters, you're not going to understand the Ten Commandments. You're not going to understand why God has given them to His people. As a result of that, we find ourselves this morning in chapters 5 and 6 in a message that I've entitled, Resistance. Now let me ask you some questions that hopefully will act as on-ramps to let you jump in to help you uh, identify with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Do you ever feel as a Christian, and by a show of hands here, do you ever feel as a Christian that you are swimming against the current of the world? Yeah, how about it? Do you ever feel as a Christian that you are cutting against the grain of life? Yeah. Do you ever feel as a Christian that the more you commit yourself to the Lord, the more the world opposes you? Yeah, look at this. Do you ever feel that when you choose to live in obedience to the Lord, things get harder rather than getting easier? Yeah, look at this. We're all on the same page. I like it the way one of my students, when I was a Sunday school teacher, put it. He said that Christianity feels like going down a dry water slide. That is a slide with no water. It's painful. Unfortunately, too many Christians have the idea that once I become a Christian, everything is going to be a rose garden or rainbows and gumdrops. The things are all going to go smoothly. I'm not going to have any problems. I'm not going to have any difficulties. All my relationships with others are going to be healed. Everything's going to be perfect. And the banner and the song of my life is going to be Kumbaya. <laughs> hey, let me tell you, when I became a Christian, it got harder rather than getting easier. Now you may be saying, like, Pastor, man, you're really selling Christianity to people. Nobody's going to want it. I think people need to know the truth before they accept it. I need people to understand that we as Christians are cutting against the grain of this life. We are swimming against the current of this world. And I'll tell you that it may be difficult to swim against that current, but any dead flesh can float downstream. And so you and I need to know that if we have experienced these things and we can identify with these things, and you and I have experienced what I would call this resistance. We've experienced this difficulty. And resistance defined is simply the act or power of resisting, opposing, or withstanding. The opposition that is offered by one thing, force, etc., to another thing, meaning that as you push one way, it's going to push back in equal or greater intensity. Resistance. Resistance. I can't tell you how many Christians have come to me and said, you know, as soon as I got real with God, as soon as I went full on for God, as soon as I wanted His will and not my will, as soon as I laid it all before Him as, and become a living sacrifice on a daily basis, man, things got hard. Things got difficult. And I said, absolutely. You know why? Because when you get serious about God, Satan gets serious about you. And as a result, often we try to avoid this resistance. We try to avoid these places of friction by simply compromising. 
Hey, it's easy to compromise. It's easy to avoid these places of resistance. But then I have to ask you the question, are you then living full on for Jesus Christ? Are you really submitting yourself to his authority? We know he's your savior, but has he become your Lord? Have you said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done? Because the moment you do that, it's going to get tough. It's going to get rough. You're going to have external struggles and you're going to have internal struggles. The external resistance that you're going to experience, but then you're also going to have internal resistance as the temptations of this world become real. You know, so many people, you know, when they're working out or they try to begin a diet to lose a few pounds, etc., Things that never tempted them before tempt them always. I can't tell you how many people have told me, man, as soon as I started dieting, I noticed there's a Chipotle in every corner. <laughs> Did you know Wendy's has a 99-cent meal? Everything becomes enticing. The moment you say, I don't want it, everything starts drawing you towards itself. It's like a magnet, a tractor beam, you know. And it becomes really difficult. The same is true in your Christian life. The moment you say, Lord, no more. I'm recognizing my old life dead. I don't want to live for its pleasures. I don't want to live to fulfill its lusts anymore. I want to walk in the Spirit denying the flesh. And that's when all the enticements of the flesh become real. Very quickly. Very quickly. I didn't know that billboard was there. Holy cow, that image. Oh, I didn't realize the commercials on TV were as raunchy as they are. What is happening? Because everything becomes real. Everything becomes intensified. That's the point of resistance. That's the moment. And I can't tell you how many have decided to live for the will of God, to be obedient to God, only to find and discover that every moment of the way they are resisted by this world. Today we come to a chapter, a couple of chapters, where we see Moses experiencing resistance for himself. And I'm glad we have these examples. Not only do we want to read the back narrative up to the Ten Commandments, but we want to learn from the narrative. We want to understand and recognize and glean from these things that we have been shown or instructed in God's word that God has demonstrated through these people. I don't know about you, but I would consider Moses a champion of the Old Testament, right? I think that if you were to talk to any Jewish person, they would have very high regards for Moses. And not only did we see Moses commissioned in chapter 3, we saw Moses respond in reluctance in chapter 4. And now we're going to find that Moses himself, implementing the will of God, being obedient to it, is now going to experience resistance. And if he experienced resistance, how much more can we anticipate experiencing resistance? You know, in the book of Acts, I love when the Apostle Paul gets saved on his, road, on his ride to Damascus, Acts 9, knocked off of his horse, carried into the city, and an individual named Ananias has to come to him, lay hands on him, uh, so Paul, you know, sight is restored, and that he receives his commission by God, but in that commission, there's a promise. These are all the things that Paul's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. God told him up front, it's going to be difficult, Paul. And sure enough, his ministry was difficult. But those difficulties of his ministries, Paul equated as light afflictions compared to the glory that he would one day experience in the presence of God. What an incredible thing. We are going to have difficulties, and we are going to experience resistance as we walk with God through this world. I want to prepare you beforehand by telling you up front. And if you haven't experienced it already, i got to ask you why. Because have you begun to compromise? Have you begun to let down your guard? Have you begun to avoid those places of resistance where you know that you need to be obedient and you choose not to be? Have you avoided those times as a Christian? Well, Moses finds himself knee-deep in it. He has finally made his way back to Egypt here in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he has finally given that audience with Pharaoh, 
And the great release or deliverance of the children of Israel has begun. And within chapters 5 and 6, even though Moses is experiencing resistance, from his viewpoint, he thinks that all things are going really bad. But from God's viewpoint, things are being set, the stage is being perfectly placed for God to do what God is about to do. Notice that our perspective is not always God's perspective. We may look at our circumstances one way and determine that we know and understand what's going on, but God, from his vantage point, might have a very different look or outlook upon that in which we are experiencing. But as Moses now returns to Pharaoh, the conflict and the resistance begin. We are going to see that Moses is going to be resisted by Pharaoh. And we anticipated that. God told him up front that that was going to happen. But then, Pharaoh is going to create great difficulties for the children of Israel there in Egypt. And the children of Israel themselves are going to rebel against Moses. He didn't anticipate that. He didn't expect that. And finally, we're going to see the third point of resistance in the heart of Moses. He went in with certain expectations of what God was going to do and how God was going to do it. And when it didn't come to pass, he began to question and he began to doubt and he began to despair because that expectation was not met, a trap that most Christians fall into. Let's begin in verse 1 as we pick it up here in chapter 5 and we see that the resistance begins. Now afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? To let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, For they are idle, therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it. And let them not regard false words. Resistance number one. Moses knew, God told him directly, that Pharaoh was going to resist Moses' command. Now understand, That this is the first of seven times that Moses will say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But also understand that this is not a negotiation between God and Pharaoh. It's a provocation. God is not negotiating with Pharaoh. This is a provocation. You will respond or else. It is an ultimatum that God is giving to Pharaoh. You will let my people go. And Pharaoh says, oh yeah? And Pharaoh then begins to challenge the authority of God within the phrase, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Verse 2. In verse 2, we see that that authority is challenged by Pharaoh himself. And therefore, Pharaoh then moves from, who is the Lord that I should obey him? To, I do not know him. To, I will not let Israel go. And as a result of that decline, 
Pharaoh then decides to place pressure upon the children of Israel by taking from them the necessity of straw and the building of bricks and requiring them not only to make the bricks but to gather the straw that was once provided for them, knowing that he was full well putting them in a place of of failure. There's no way they could do both. And not maintain the quota that Pharaoh had instructed. They couldn't do it. It was physically impossible. But Pharaoh said, look, they have gathered behind you and Aaron, Moses. They are idle. They are not working. They are just simply standing around fine. Then they need more to do. And I will take the provision of straw and now require it of them. And not one brick shall be missed in the quota that I had prescribed. And as a result, he instructs the taskmasters and the the officers of the servants of Egypt, the, the slaves of Egypt, the Israelites. Now the taskmasters and the officers were most likely Jewish people who had betrayed their loyalty to the Jewish people and now were serving Pharaoh. They may look like Egyptians themselves adopting the culture and even maybe the gods. And as a result, they are considered traitorous to the Israeli people, the Jewish people. But they are still wanting the scraps of Egypt. They're desiring whatever little tiny morsel of comfort and prosperity they can obtain by being disloyal and and, uh, creating an allegiance onto Pharaoh. And so they're put in a very difficult place. And as a result, we are going to see that this will lead to the second point of resistance. But let's explore for a moment the words of Pharaoh. Because within these words, I see the heart of every non-believer today. Within the heart of a non-believer, one who does not believe in God, the very first thing that they challenge God with is, Who are you that I should obey you? God has no authority in their life. God has no place in their life. They are in a state of rebellion against God. The Bible goes one step further to say that one who is apart from God outside of Christ is actually at enmity with God. Now understand that. And they challenge His authority in their life. They believe they're an independent agent in and of themselves. They believe that they are the ones dictating their own future and destiny. They are the ones that they believe that has the final say of what is right and wrong in their own minds only to discover at the end that they were completely wrong. For everyone is under someone's authority. If you are in Christ, then you are under the authority of God the Father. If you are apart from Christ, you're under the authority of the ruler of this world. There is no middle ground. And the ruler of this world is a master of deception, and he will allow you to believe that you have everything in control, that you know what's best for yourself, that the road you are on is the same road that everybody else is on, so you must be right because everybody else is doing it. When in actuality, that road that is so broadly traveled ends in destruction. Jesus made that abundantly clear. Jesus made that abundantly clear. And those who are walking in Christ know that the road is narrow and difficult. And very few find it. But that place of rebellion, that position, that mindset of rebellion against God, then leads them to say, I do not know them. I do not know him, I should say. I do not know God, just as Pharaoh said here. Now, many uh, Jewish historians and Jewish tradition says that at this point, Pharaoh sarcastically turned to his counselors and said to them, find for me this God that Moses and Aaron are introducing here at this moment. Look through the religious books 
and show me this God. And they came back and said, this God is not listed amongst the books of our gods. I do not know this God of yours, Moses and Aaron. Do you ever wonder why our world and our culture is so relationship-driven? Did you ever wonder about it? People are trying to find relationships everywhere. And everything that's supposed to help them secure relationships seems to be doing just the opposite, deterring those relationships from developing. Many believe that when social networking was introduced that people were going to be able to connect in a whole new way. But do you know that they have actually discovered now that individuals who could have hundreds of friends on Facebook sometimes only have one or two close personal friends that they could converse with at any given time. Our world is starved for relationship. Just look amongst the teenagers and the young adults of America. They're starving for relationship. And the reason that they're starving for that relationship is because the relationship that they should be enjoying is severed because of sin. The relationship that would fill that emptiness, that void, that longing has been severed by sin. And the world has told them, don't look to God. God can never provide that relationship that you are so desperately in need of and wanting. And yet it's in Him and only in Him that that relationship can be satisfied and found and therefore being able to look objectively at our relationships here on this earth. It is amazing how difficult the obtaining and the maintaining of relationships are for people today. Do you know we live at a time now where people are having so many difficulties in just simply making friends? They're always looking for some kind of an avenue, some kind of a mechanism to create friends. They can be amongst a group of people and they don't know how to connect with those people. They don't know how to interact with those people because they've never been required to. Typing on the keyboard is not the same thing as having a conversation face-to-face. And as a result, people do not know how to cultivate personal relationships any longer. You know, there used to be a time before the internet. I know a lot of you are saying, what? Time existed? The world existed before the internet? That people actually had to call each other on the phone if they wanted to talk. I remember a time when the phone rang and you'd have no clue who it was for. You had to cultivate relationships. You had to learn how to give and take. You had to learn to get along with other people. You had to learn how to make friends and maintain friendships and maintain relationships. Do you know that's a lost art today? Do you know that today the most common questions for psychologists and psychiatrists to be asked is, how do I obtain or maintain my personal relationships? People just don't know how. And the farther we move away from God, what I see is the greater longing that people have for this meaningful relationship. I do not know him. I was one of those young men who, when I discovered the relationship that was possible through Jesus Christ after coming to saving faith in him, I couldn't believe what I was missing. I couldn't believe it. God satisfied something that the world could never even come close to satisfying. I now knew Him. I was never alone. Loneliness today is the number one source of depression. Loneliness is the number one source of depression. I was never alone. He was always there with me from that point forward. And therefore, if you don't believe that God has authority and you do not know him, why should you choose to obey him? You wouldn't. 
You would live in a state of rebellion against God, thinking that what you are doing is going to satisfy some of those inner longings and needs that you have, only to discover that even if they're just satisfied for a moment, it is so temporary. But that's the way it is for living for pleasure. You have to wait so long in between experiences, and those experiences are so short-lived. This is what happens when we try to live life without God. This is when we try to do it ourselves in a place of rebellion against God. This is what happens when we choose to live for ourselves rather than living for God. We are in one of the most miserable times of human development. And have you noticed that this time more than ever is all about self? It's all about me. I remember when people used to laugh at the fact that there was a magazine called Self. The number one picture portrait now today is called a selfie. Okay? It's like, how many pictures of duck lips can you have? You know, pardon me, why take another selfie? You know, it's like, what? Really? I I think we should just like get t-shirts that like have a picture of a selfie with a line across it in a circle, you know, just banning selfies. (laughs) All right, let's get off the selfies here for a minute. But we find that Pharaoh now has positioned himself against God. And I want you to notice this. That many believe that the conflict begin with the, with the plagues of Egypt, with the judgments pronounced upon Egypt, and that's when the conflict began. No, the conflict actually begins in verses 1 and in verses 10 of chapter 5. It's a grammatical thing that you wouldn't see on the surface, but is properly represented in the New King James Bible. I'm not sure about the other translations. Maybe they're also. But when Moses, speaking on the behalf of God, comes into Pharaoh, he says these words, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And I especially love when Charlton Heston says that. But notice in verse 10, Pharaoh's rebuttal. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, What? Thus says Pharaoh. This is directly the exact same saying in Hebrew. Pharaoh is saying, You think your God has authority? You're going to come to me and say, Thus say the Lord and expect me to obey? Understand that I have the authority here. What right do you call the children of Israel your people? They are my slaves, he is saying. And resisting God in these words, Thus says Pharaoh, really? I love when people set up God like this. Do you really think you're going to win, Pharaoh? The hardening of the heart has begun. The resistance against Moses, and specifically the God of Moses, has begun. The conflict has begun right here in those words. Who shall be the one in authority? And who shall these people belong to. The stage is set. In verse 15, we find that the taskmasters and the officers are failing in their endeavor to try to keep up the quota of the number of bricks. So where do they go, these uh, pseudo-Jewish people, these traitors, these compromisers? They do not go to God. They go back to Pharaoh. And they say, why have you led us? Why have you laid such a heavy burden and task upon us? We cannot fulfill this requirement. Pharaoh, knowing exactly what he was attempting to do, he was attempting to cause division between Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel. When Moses and Aaron originally arrived in Egypt, the children of Israel welcomed them. They applauded them. They celebrated them. But now that the tasks have become more difficult, that their life had become more difficult due to the fact of Pharaoh's resistance, they are now going back to Pharaoh. They are pleading with him. And Pharaoh basically says here again in verse 15, Then the officers and the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw to give your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he, that is Pharaoh, said, You are idle. Idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice 
to the Lord. Here and in verse 9, twice, Pharaoh is trying to create that division. He is trying to sever that loyalty. He's trying to sever that following. He's saying, Moses and Aaron has only brought more difficulty to you. Why would you choose to follow after them? And so in verses 20 and 21, they come back to Moses and Aaron. And they came out from Pharaoh. This, uh, that is this meeting that they just had. They met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on your, you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hands to kill us. You have only made it more difficult. Why should we heed you? Why should we follow after you? Why should we endure this difficulty? Many who respond to the gospel, Jesus said, in the gospels, he said, when they hear it, they receive it initially with gladness, but then when the cares of this world come about, they abandon it. Or when the difficulties of this world come about, they abandon it. Showing that they never truly were saved. Why should we follow you? You've only bought greater difficulty to us. Resistance number two. Now the children of Israel who had once accepted them are now resisting them. And Moses is now troubled. Difficulty has occurred. Resistance has taken place. It's not only Pharaoh in whom they expected, but now the children of Israel have done a 180 through the spokesmen of the taskmasters and the officers to Moses and Aaron. And so now Moses and Aaron must respond. They do so, as any good leader should. Moses went to the Lord. But notice what Moses says to the Lord. Resistance number three. So in verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all? Whose fault is it? God, it's your fault. I expected Pharaoh. I didn't expect the 180 turn that the children of Israel have just done upon. Now I'm questioning my own heart. Remember, he started out in a position of reluctance. He took that step out in faith. God confirmed it many times that he was doing the right thing. But now resistance has challenged him. And in that resistance and in that challenge, he's now wavering. Why have you sent me? As one commentator wrote, he said this, Moses did what all spiritual leaders must do when the going is tough. He took his burden to the Lord and honestly talked to him about the situation. It is easy to see that Moses was disappointed and distressed. He blamed God for the way Pharaoh was mistreating the Jews. And he accused him, that is, of, that is God, of doing nothing. Is this why you have sent me, he asks? In other words, are you going to keep your promise to me or not, God? Many Christians have found themselves in great difficulties negotiating this world due to false expectations. Many pastors, to solicit conversions, have wrongfully sold the Christian faith as some soothing ointment to every problem of their personal lives, and Jesus is going to make all things better. I say, well, what's wrong with that? Often Jesus does make all things better, but he does it in his own ways, and often it's through great difficulties. Can God heal a marriage? Absolutely. Can God heal a relationship between a father and son, a mother and a daughter? Absolutely. Can God change the circumstances in our lives in a heartbeat? But we must go in it with our eyes wide open. We must understand that it's no longer our will, but His will be done. We have to understand that we are living sacrifices in the hands of a living God and that He is allowed to do anything in and through our lives that He chooses to do. And it might not always be what we want, but God never promises to provide what we want. He promises to provide what we need. 
And so we have to have a realistic expectation of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus was a, a really clear on this point in the Gospels. He asked us to count the cost. He wanted us to know what it meant to be a Christian and to follow him. And he lays down a standard that is so often neglected and never talked about in pulpits often anymore here in America that the standard for discipleship is to deny thyself, take up the cross, and follow after him. That's what Christianity is. That's biblical Christianity. It's not all about us. We shouldn't solicit conversions simply on the basis that we want to offer people another supplement to fix their broken lives. Jesus isn't a supplement. He's our Lord and King. And he is in the restoration business. He loves to restore those things that he finds broken and battered and beaten in the world. Loves to restore them. Because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. But when I sell a false expectation to the people in, in hopes of soliciting response... All I have done is created an expectation that soon will fail. This was very prevalent about 20 years ago. And this type of evangelism, introduction to the gospel, etc., led many to this statement. Maybe you've heard it yourself. Maybe you've been conversing with someone and all of a sudden they come back to you after discovering that you are a Christian and they say this, I tried that and it just didn't work for me. Have you ever had someone say that to you? It's probably because they were sold a false bill of goods. They were told something that wasn't true. An expectation was created. And when that expectation wasn't fulfilled according to their desired plans, they abandoned it all. That's why we have to be so careful that we tell people the truth. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. Is he a God of mercy, compassion, and grace? Absolutely. I am the epitome of that standing here today. But he's also holy. He is righteous. He is just. And we must take those things into consideration also. We must understand that he is God and I am not. That he is our Lord and we are his follower. That he is in control and I am in submission to that authority. That's Christianity. And yes, God loves to bless his kids. Don't get me wrong on that. But as I surrender my life, and I surrender my will, and I allow him to work from the inside out through my life, then healing begins. And it usually starts with me. It usually starts with me. Many Christians who come to Christ have thought that when he begins to repair lives, he works in everybody else first. And then maybe them, if they really need it. But I don't think I'm really the problem. I think it's them. And so God needs to fix them. And then once he fixes them, maybe he can look at me a little bit. But we always seem to lessen or diminish our personal responsibility in the problem. See, once God gets a hold of you, he gets a hold of you. And he starts changing you from the inside out. And he starts conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And then you react differently within those relationships that are broken. And often those relationships are healed when you apologize for what you have done to sever that relationship. That's Christianity. But Moses now went in with an expectation. That expectation didn't play out perfectly in his mind the way he anticipated it. And as a result, he is in a place of discouragement. He is le- that discouragement is leading to despair. But now God answers his prayer. I love the first 13 verses of chapter 6. I call it the I will passage. Seven times God now says, look and watch what I will do. This is awesome. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what, what does he say? What I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he himself will drive them out. I added that so you understand the emphasis of the land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
Whenever you encounter resistance, remember that the stage is being set for God to glorify himself vastly more than he probably could if that resistance was not offered. That resistance often brings us to a point of complete dependency upon God. That resistance often brings us to a point where we see that we cannot do what we are about to do in and of ourselves, and that's when God steps in and says, I will, for I am the Lord. I love this. Verse 3, I have appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I was known as sustainer and provider. But now they will understand the meaning of Yahweh. Now they will understand who I am when they understand that not only am I a sustainer and a provider, but I am the one who keeps his promises. And what he has promised, he is able to perform. Moses, I don't know what you expected, but what you are about to see and witness next is definitely, if I may put this in layman's term from the Hebrew, is absolutely going to blow your mind. Verse 4. For I have also established my covenant with them, that is my promise, to give them a land that is the land of Canaan, the land of the pilgr- their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. I have remembered my covenant, my promise to them. Verse 6 through 8. Now notice the number of I will statements. Beginning this section with the Hebrew word that is translated therefore, as a result of, is another way. Therefore says the Lord to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Moses, this resistance that you are experiencing, don't let it discourage you. Don't let it bring you to a point of distress, for I have allowed it to occur to show myself strong. What you could not do in and of yourself, Moses, I am going to do in and through you. It will be me who will rescue my people. That rescuing continued all the way to the cross and beyond the cross. As Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. It is now God who is rescuing people out of this world. As he is delivering people out of Egypt here in our passage, it is Jesus who is delivering people out of the bondages of the ruler of this world, under the bondages of the weight of sin and death. It is Jesus who has redeemed us by his precious blood. For we have not been bought with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I will, where we cannot, God steps in and says, I will, for I am the Lord your God. I am convinced that he is into climactic scenes, God. I love when people oppose him. I love when individuals like Pharaoh says, Thus says the Lord. Well, thus says Pharaoh. (laughs) Buddy, you better watch out, man, because you don't know what's coming next. And as a result, God now begins to intercede and move on his behalf, on their behalf. God, fully aware of their scenario, fully aware of what they are experiencing, as one stated this, He says, when we know that God is in control and we claim his promises, then we can experience peace and courage in the battles of life. Moses, watch what I will do. Watch what I will do. Verse 9. 
So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Because things have become so difficult for them, they now resisted Moses completely. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. I I don't speak well. I can't get the words out. It's not working, Lord. In verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses still shell-shocked even in the wake of the promises of God. But see, I've noticed something, that often the the individuals of the Scriptures are given the promises of God, but it isn't until the fulfillment of those promises that create the embracement of those promises. Let me articulate it this way. Many are given promises, but they don't really truly trust those promises until they're fulfilled. Abraham was the same way. You shall have a child through Sarah, your wife. Really? And then for years it didn't take place. He took things into his own hands and he had one through his handmaiden, Hagar. And then sure enough, afterwards, Sarah became pregnant. Often in that point of delay when a promise is made, we don't seem to be as willing to embrace it until after God has fulfilled his promises. Now, notice the compassion and the mercy and the grace that God has with Moses and Aaron. Understanding that God has never revealed himself in their lifetime in this way. For it hasn't been since the time of Noah that judgment has occurred. He is gracious and he brings them along and allows them now to see that he who has promised these things is able to perform his promises. I have discovered that over my life as a Christian, whenever I find myself in a difficulty that requires me to trust God even to a greater depth or degree, I notice that I still vacillate at the problem. I still vacillate at the promise. The problem is before me. The promise is given to me. But for some reason, I just haven't come to that place of trust yet to allow the promise to fulfill or to fix or to overcome the problem. What I do now at that point, and I think it's just by learning over the years, is I then go back in my mind and remember all of the problems that I faced before that the promises of God did overcome. And when I remember God's faithfulness, and I remember his, his ability, and I remember that when I was weak, he was strong. When I was faithless, he was faithful. I then can look at my problem more objectively and trust the promise of God to overcome the problem. Now, part of the problem for our lack of trust is the fact that we don't know how God's going to do it. We would love for God not only to give us the promise that he is going to overcome the problem, but also give us the manner in which he's going to do it. Wouldn't that be nice? You wake up the next morning, you open up your laptop, and there's an email from God. Hey, I know the problem you're facing. Uh, This is what I'm going to do to resolve it. So just kind of sit back and relax. That would be fantastic, but it wouldn't produce anything in our life other than dependence of us running to our laptops. We need a dependence to run to God. So whatever problem you face, remember that the promise of God that he has given you shall overcome that problem, but we just don't know how God's going to do it. And God knew Moses and Aaron's frailties. They knew, he knew that they only had a certain understanding. We read from it from hindsight, it's all in the past, but they're going through it at the moment, and he's so gracious to them. Now, I'm giving you a command, go back to them. I don't care if they heed me or not, I'm God. So here, I'm giving you the command, go back. Don't only let them know, but let Pharaoh know also. As we walk with God, we have to understand that we are going to be resisted in three areas of life, and we'll close with this. Number one, the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world, like Pharaoh, is going to try to resist our walk and commitment to the Lord. And he will often use his people, that is the people of the world, to to help in that resistance. Number two, we are going to experience resistance from those who claim to be Christians. That's becoming all too apparent, isn't it? 
I don't know about you, but I'm having more difficulties with Christians who have decided to compromise on the Word of God, with Christians who have decided to take a more liberal view of the Word of God than I am having with the world. These Christians want to challenge me on every step of theology now. Well, God didn't really create the world in six days, but He said He did. Well, He said He did, but He really didn't. You know, He used an evolutionary process, etc. You know, if two people love each other, why shouldn't we allow them to marry and enjoy that love? Well, because God designed marriage, and it's between a husband and a wife. Let me make it even more clear. Male and female. Because God said so. But that was back then, and we are more openly broad-minded today. You know, you're so open-minded that everything's falling out. Today, we have so many who are taking portions of Scripture, and because the literal rendering of, of it is uncomfortable and socially unacceptable, they are now moving to what they believe is the intellectual reasoning of allegory. Well, that was just allegorical. Really? Even though God uses names, even though God uses specific dates, even though, and it's just allegorical? Really? I discovered that the greatest resistance that I'm having now is amongst those who call themselves Christians, who are not. And lastly, by ourselves. It is vitally important that we check our expectations against the Word of God to make sure that we haven't bought into an expectation that God has not promised. We must be careful of that, guys. Because when that expectation fails, we have a tendency to blame God when in actuality, and that's exactly what Moses did. Notice, he blamed God. But God never set that expectation. He fulfilled it. He drew in the blanks. He filled in the blanks with his own personal reasoning. And when God did not perform that way, his expectation failed. And therefore, his confidence failed. And he went into discouragement. Three points of resistance. I want to close with the words of Greg Laurie. In the same way, we must believe that when God leads us to do something, it's, it is going to be easy, but it isn't. You need to understand that when you are in the will of God, you should brace yourself for the anticipation of opposition and resistance. Know it. Whenever you take a venture of faith, whenever you try to do something to touch the lives of people, especially with the message of the gospel. Whenever you seek to take steps of obedience in your own life, the devil is going to resist and oppose you all along the way. Resistance. Resistance. 